0: Jesus, each week that we journey through the book of Judges that I study in preparation for these messages, I become more and more grateful that you are our leader. You are our chief shepherd. And you are good. You are the good shepherd. Would we be more in love with you, Jesus, as a result of what we consider this morning, and would we take to heart the the warnings offered to us in this passage. We love you, Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, so Sam picked up reading exactly where we left off last week, in week one, looking at uh, Gideon's leadership over Israel. So Gideon rallies this significant force of Israelites, but then God asks Gideon to to winnow that force down to a mere 300. Then Gideon goes down to the camp at God's suggestion, the Midianite camp, and overhears this dream and its interpretation, letting Gideon know that they are going to win the victory. And so Gideon then uh, instructs his 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 lead, and there's this interesting thing with torches and trumpets and Sometimes commentators want to explain why that was such a brilliant idea, but I think what the passage that Sam read for us wants to make clear is that it was God that won the victory. It says, after all, that the Israelites just stood there, right? They stood in their places, and God won the victory for them. And then the Midianites begin to flee. And we get all those interesting place names that I so cruelly made my wife read for us. Um, we're going to, because I know some of you are visual people, we're going to put uh, a map up on the screen. Now, you will not be able to read anything on this map, okay? But hopefully, um, you'll be able to see some colors. And I'm sincere here. If you are, don't have the greatest vision and you're colorblind, I sincerely apologize because you will not be able to follow any of this. Um, But for those of us, and and I'm serious in that, um, for those of us who who can at least see colors, um, you'll see the green arrows, so that's the forces rallying to Gideon, okay? And then where it says Herod, where the arrow turns yellow, that's where he uh, winnowed down his force to the 300, and then they go up and surround the Midianites. Where the, the yellow arrows meet, that's where the battle happens, and then the red is the Midianites fleeing, okay? You can see that they're headed down towards the Jordan River that runs right through the middle of the map here. The blue shows the Ephraimites who Gideon sent messengers to to come and secure the fords of the Jordan, right? Gideon knew the Midianites will be fleeing trying to get back to Midian, but first they had to cross the Jordan River. So Gideon sends some messengers to the Ephraimites says, "Secure the fords of the Jordan, cut off their escape." And they do manage to do that at least in part. We'll discover that that they weren't entirely successful, but Before we jump into chapter 8 of Judges, the last chapter detailing Gideon's leadership, I want us to notice something. As we go through chapter 8, we'll see, or we'll feel rather, a change in tone. A change in tone in Gideon himself and then in the events surrounding him. And L.R. Klein suggests why this might be. I think we have this quote on the screen. He says this, the coward has become confident, speaking of Gideon, of course, he directs far-flung, mopping-up operations, which are effectively carried out. But the voice of the Lord is stilled, not to be heard for the balance of Gideon's narrative. And the spirit of the Lord, which brought the courage to fight a far greater military force, seems to slip from Gideon's shoulders in the process. So let's Start journeying through chapter 8 and see if that is indeed the case. We're going to focus on four moments, four vignettes in chapter 8 in Gideon's uh, leadership over Israel. And in chapter 8, we'll see, I think, more of the second form of judging than we've seen at all uh, previously in the book of Judges so far. The second form, remember, is that the role of judges was twofold, right? There was the external side of things. In other words, delivering the Israelites from uh, foreign oppression. But then there was an internal reality of, of governing or, or judging disputes in some way, and in chapter 8, we'll see more of that second form of judging, and here's the four vignettes uh, we're going to look at, and I've named them. Some of you will love this, and some of you will hate me for this, all right? Here's the four vignettes we're going to look at. Number one, the Ephraimites' objection. Number two, Sukkoth's rejection. You see what I'm doing here? Number three, Gideon's retribution. Yes, we're carrying it the whole way. And number four, a disastrous accommodation, Okay. These four vignettes. Let's begin with the Ephraimite verse one. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you've done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So the Ephraimites, rightly or wrongly, are upset that Gideon did not invite them to the original battle, that they were only told when there was this sort of cutting off of the retreat. And we can imagine, I think, a response from Gideon that, you know, going back to that lens that we considered that Jesus gave us. We can imagine a response to the Ephraimites that might have led them into a deeper loving of God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. It would have been some kind of bold, retelling of God's faithfulness to the Israelites in this conflict with Midian from start to finish, right? Well, Ephraimites, let me tell you, I didn't even really want any part in this whole thing, but God called me, and, and, and then he winnowed down this force to 300, and then we didn't even really do anything. We just kind of stood there, right? This could have been a story that Gideon told them, and then maybe they might have built another altar to Yahweh, as Gideon had done earlier on, to God's faithfulness. But this isn't what happens. Instead, Gideon takes this attack personally. That's certainly how the Ephraimites seem to mean it, right? They attacked him fiercely, the the text says. But Gideon then does take it personally. He does manage, we should say, to disarm this conflict, right? It doesn't result in, you know, swords being drawn or anything. Some uh, commentators say this is Gideon at his diplomatic best. But in the course of disarming this argument, this conflict, he robs God of much of the glory of the victory that's been won and gives lots of it, as much as he can, in fact, to the Ephraimites. And so we're left wondering in this vignette maybe Klein is right that the spirit of the Lord has indeed slipped from Gideon's shoulders. But let's continue on and look at the second vignette, see if things maybe turn around. Sukkoth's rejection, number two. So look at verse four. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So, verse 4 here connects back to verse 22 that Sam read for us in chapter 7. So it says, The army fled as far as Beth-Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of abel by up. So you'll see, so... The blue is the Ephraimites coming to cut off the Jordan, and they manage to, um, we read in the text, indeed, uh, prevent the retreat of some of the Midianites. They capture and kill two Midianite princes. But some of the Midianites manage to get across, and Gideon pursues. And for whatever reason, Gideon decides to pursue with just his 300, his force of 300. Okay, so let's look what happens. Verse 5 of chapter 8. So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they're exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zabah and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zabah and Zalmanah already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zabah and Zalmanah into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars." So Gideon crosses the Jordan with his 300, and naturally, after all that they've been through, they're a little bit weary. And one of the first Israelite, we should say, communities, Sukkoth, that they come to, Gideon asks for provision, a reasonable request from fellow Israelites as they're trying to run the rest of the Midianites out of Israel. And the officials of Sukkoth reject, they snub Gideon. And it would be easy for us to simply chalk this up to hard-heartedness of some sort, Right? But I think a pretty good case can be made that the officials, the people of Sukkoth, were fearful and cautious. Consider their situation, right? They're probably looking at Gideon's force, seeing 300 weary men following Gideon. And they're thinking, Gideon, if if we help you here... um, you know, you see your 300 and they look a little bit weary. It seemed like many more Midianites that, you know, passed by. If you aren't able to finish the job here, we're on the eastern side of the Jordan here. We're exposed. And every year when Midian, the Midianites come and pillage our crops and all we're the first ones to experience it. And if you don't finish this and the Midianites hear that we helped you and they come back next year, we're going to experience some, some consequences. And so they're afraid to help Gideon. Gideon doesn't take any of, this, any of these possibilities into account. Instead, he promises vengeance against the people of Sukkoth. He says, listen, I'm still going to win this victory without your help. And when I come back, I'm going to give you a beating, the likes of which you've never experienced. And then Gideon continues on to the next town over, Penuel, and has the exact same encounter. With the people of that city. Only there, instead of promising to whip them with thorns and briars, he promises to break down their watchtower. So let's now skip over a couple of verses and look at our third vignette Gideon's retribution. So in Judges chapter 8, verses 10 to 12, we read that Gideon does manage to catch Zabah and Zalmana by surprise. Um, he, he, he and his 300 managed to defeat the remaining Midianites and capture these two Midianite kings. And he begins to, to make his way back to the Jordan with his two captives. And we wonder, we hope, that maybe Gideon has cooled off. Maybe he's seen the error of his ways. And while we allow Gideon to make his way back to the Jordan, let's consider again what may be a response. Going back to that lens from Jesus' words, what would a response that showed love for his fellow Israelites, his neighbors in the truest sense, uh, what would it mean, what would it look like to love them as he loved himself? Again, I can imagine, you know, Gideon might come back to Sukkoth or Painewell and say, listen, I know what it is to fear to raise my hand against the Midianites. When God called me, I was threshing wheat in a wine press." And then my first act of obedience to Yahweh, I did in the pitch black of night, because I was afraid. But let me tell you something, people of Sukkoth, God has won a victory for us today. And though you didn't help me, I'm going to leave you to take that up with him, with God. Is this Gideon's response? You can probably tell by me naming this vignette, Gideon's retribution, that that's not quite how Gideon responds. Look at verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zabah and Zalmanah, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zabah and Zalmanah already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. Verse 17. And he broke down the tower of Penuel, and killed the men of the city. So Gideon... Far from cooling off, he comes back to Sukkoth. He, he comes a different way, right? Because we would expect him on his return journey to come to Painewell first. But instead, he c- arrives in Sukkoth first and exacts the exact revenge exacts the exact revenge that he promised. Right? Gets thorns, briars, and teaches them a lesson, the text tells us. But this seems to only fuel Gideon's thirst for revenge. And he continues on to Painewell, breaks down their tower, just as he said, And then proceeds to kill the men of the city, fellow Israelites. I saw this this image in my preparation this week. A little hard to see. But this is Gideon leaving, and in the distance we see Penoel burning. And the bleakness of this captures how I think we feel as we read about Gideon's leadership in this moment. It does indeed seem that without the aid of the Holy Spirit, Gideon is failing Israel. Becoming his own kind of tyrant. And none of this trace of loving, loving his neighbor as himself. Far from it. And then, indeed the text tells us that he presumably crosses over the Jordan and then kills Zabah and Zalmanah, the two Midianite kings, but only after trying to get his young son to do the execution for him. But his son is just a kid. He's a boy. He's too afraid. And the Midianite kings say, if you're going to do this, you do it. So Gideon kills the two kings. But arguably, Gideon's greatest failure isn't towards the people of Israel, it's towards God. Let's look at our fourth vignette, a disastrous accommodation. Look at verse 22. Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian." Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son won't rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites, that is, the Midianites that they had um, defeated. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments. And the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian. And besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel. And they raised their heads no more. And the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So the Israelites... At least some of them, certainly not, you know, a, a man from every clan and tribe of Israel, but some portion of them come to Gideon and try and get them to, to rule over them. This a flawed offer from the start. See, we, you might not realize this, but long before there was a monarchy in Israel, back in the law of Moses, God had given instructions. If Israel was ever to take a king for how the selection of that king would work and what the king should be like, how they should lead, And Israel completely disregards those instructions here, which is perhaps why the people of Israel in their offer never say, be our king, Gideon. They just say, rule over us, you know, just ambiguously. But Gideon, somewhat surprisingly, based on what we've just seen in these last couple of vignettes, he turns down the offer. But notice that he doesn't correct the people's mistake. They say, Gideon, rule over us. You've won this victory over Midian, Gideon doesn't say, no, far from it, God won this victory. However, he does say, no, I will not rule over you, God should rule over you. Even now, Gideon seems to have some sense that there's loyalty due to Yahweh. But sadly, his actions following these words tell a far different story from his words. Consider what Gideon does after denying to to lead the people. He does the exact things that you would expect a king to do. First, he asks for a tribute of gold from the spoils they had just taken in their battle. And ironically, sadly, this is one of the three specific things forbidden Israelite kings back in that passage in the Law of Moses. God said, these three things Israelite kings must not do. Take too many horses, marry too many wives, and and store up for themselves too much gold or silver, The three things that would lead a king of Israel to believe that they were self-sufficient, that their rule would extend forever, right? Military strength, sons and daughters to continue their reign in perpetuity, and great wealth. And Gideon, right off the hop, breaks one of these right away, asking for a tribute of gold. Then it seems that he keeps his own spoils from it, right? Because the passage tells us the the weight of this gold, but excludes the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the robes which were on the kings of Midian, which presumably Gideon keeps for himself, and then Gideon most disastrously, disastrously crafts an ephod and leads the people in worship to it. Now this, this symbol, the ephod, is, is, it appears in different places in various forms in the ancient Near East. Certainly if you have read much of the uh, Old Testament, you know that Israel was instructed to craft one, a sort of breast piece for the the priests to wear when they went into the temple to minister. And there was uh, the ephod that God commanded the Israelites to make that were to be used in making difficult decisions, right? Seeking guidance from, from God. And so commentators believe that Gideon constructed his own, you know, bastardized version of this and then permanently installs it there in Ophrah, perhaps even on an idol, perhaps even on the altar, the idol of Baal that he himself had torn down. And then maybe the people come to it initially just for guidance, but however it starts, they quickly just end up openly, Gideon included, worshiping this idol that Gideon has set up. And so, Rather than bringing the people back into faithfulness towards God, Israel's deliverer becomes their de facto king and the sponsor of more idol worship. We talked last week about the downward spiral. Man, we're seeing it here, aren't we? And so as we close, I want us to consider one last time the lens that that Jesus gave us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, With all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We might say, friends, that Gideon gets these two things exactly backwards. What what do I mean? Well, whereas God asks that we offer him our whole hearts, exclusive allegiance, having no other gods before him, Gideon suggests a compromise. Yeah, we can have Yahweh and an idol made of gold. Why not? And whereas Gideon was shown tremendous grace and patience from God, as we talked about last week, and thus we would expect and hope for him to be the most gracious and patient with his fellow Israelites, he refuses to compromise with them. Instead, striking down those who refused to help him? And so, friends, I think this is a, a cautionary tale for us, instruction or 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 a, uh, a word that we might guard ourselves, because as we see in, in Gideon's life, and as we see all of the time, unfortunately, it's all too easy for God's past guidance over us. Maybe his power at work in and through us to slowly, over time, slip into us listening for the voice of the Spirit less and less and less, and instead just trusting our own instincts, right? Because things have worked out well in the past. This is a cautionary tale. May we guard ourselves against the belief that God can be worshipped alongside our favorite idols, When it comes to our allegiance to God, there can be no compromise. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. But on the other hand, it's a cautionary tale, friends. May we guard ourselves against the belief that we ever have the right to stop compromising with others, with our neighbors. I don't mean compromising in terms of our convictions. I mean how we treat those who've wronged us or who see the world completely different than we do. When we consider the grace and patience and love we've been shown by God, how could we ever stop being patient and gracious and loving and kind with those in the world around us? Difficult words, friends. Uh, uh, A disastrous and sad story, and yet one I hope we can learn from and love Jesus all the more because of. Let's pray. God, we have read some stories here in this book of Judges that have been um, surreal almost. And this story, on the other hand, is deeply saddening to me. To see this deliverer whom you raised up for the people of Israel to become so twisted in on himself. Jesus, I pray that we would seek to be people who would refuse to compromise in our allegiance to you and yet who would never stop being gracious and patient and compromising with the people around us because of the love that you have for us and the grace you have extended towards us. And I thank you, Jesus, that you came to earth and showed us in living color what that looks like. May we follow your example, Jesus, by your spirit at work in us. I pray this in your name. Amen.